If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me to the book of Zechariah as we return to our study of Zechariah. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we do have some Bibles on the back cart that you're welcome to use. You can also just follow along on the screen in just a moment. If you're visiting with us, we normally study books of the Bible here at Ascension, and we have been for the past several weeks, past couple months, in fact, working our way through this Old Testament prophet entitled Zechariah. We're about halfway through the book, a little more than halfway through the book, and we find ourselves this morning in a new section of the book, a new season of the story, we might say. Last week, we looked at the final vision of this eightfold vision that God gave the prophet Zechariah to then communicate to the people of Israel for their encouragement. And I know that this morning as we leave those visions behind, that there is some extreme sadness upon the part of our kids. And I want to say, kids, I know I feel you in that sadness. Because how fun has it been, I've seen some of these drawings, how fun has it been to draw wickedness being carried away in a basket by two angelic beings with wings like storks. I mean, that's been fun. Horns and craftsmen and and chariots and giant scrolls coming out of the sky. So we leave all of that vivid imagery behind, and now we come back to more normal narrative. And I hope that God's Word will still, kids, give you something to hear and to understand and to even draw We've moved on and we'll remain for the rest of our time in in what is known as part two of the book of Zechariah as we leave those visions behind. And as I spoke about last week through the last vision, the Lord communicated, at least in part, that, that there was a dawn of sorts breaking, that there was a dawn that was breaking. And God's people The nation of Israel are sensing this, and so it prompts a question from them. And it's that question that is at the heart of our passage today. We hear the question, and then we hear the first half of Yahweh's answer. His answer is actually four parts, and we're going to look at the first two parts today. But actually, chapter 7 and 8 could be taken together as a unit, I just decided that it was much too big of a bite to chew on and to take in one sermon. And so we're going to unpack chapter 7 today, we're going to unpack chapter 8 next week, but they're the same answer to what the question is. And I'm about to read that to you. Before I read, I want to give you some context of where we're at in time. It's December of 518 B.C., We know that by the time stamp that we hear at the beginning of this passage, December 518 B.C. From last week to this week, we've been launched ahead two years in time. So it was two years ago that Zechariah communicated his vision to God's people. He received that vision. He communicated that vision two years ago. Now he's picking up with more two years later. So all that time, the temple, which is, remember, the kind of the centerpiece of what God's people are after and about, people have been working to rebuild the temple. But it'll be another two years until the temple is complete. So about halfway to restoring 
the temple about two years away from last week's vision. So that's where we are in time. That's where we are in place. Let's listen to God's word. Zechariah chapter 7. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Listen and follow along as I read. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and of the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, Was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your hearts. But they refused to pay attention. And they turned a stubborn shoulder. And they stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate." This is the word of the Lord. Maybe this popped into my mind, helping Austin and Ellen get their rental property last weekend back to move in ready shape. If you've ever moved out of a house, you know that it's amazing what a coat of paint can do to cover up mildew, to cover up scrapes and marks, or a bag of mulch to hide bad soil or a bed full of weeds or a nice scented candle to disguise the stench of a room. That's what this passage is about. You can cover things up all you want, but it doesn't change what's underneath. It doesn't change what's inside. Last week we focused on two promises for weary hearts. And this week we find the Word exhorting us to be mindful of two important things. And the first one is this. Beware of outward religion. Beware of outward religion. 
Let's begin with a question that prompts this fourfold answer that Yahweh gives to his people. The first two parts, again, we're going to look at today, the next two parts next week. The question is this, essentially, that God's people come, and it's spoken of in the singular first person, but it's, it's meant to be understood as the plural. Uh, God's people are asking this question, do we really need to keep on fasting? In the text, it says, weep and abstain, but that's what you need to understand is going on. The weeping and abstaining is fasting. Fasting as a show of repentance, as a sign of mourning, was a common thing among God's people. It was a common thing in the Old Testament. Although there was only one prescribed fast for God's people in the Old Testament, we learn about it in Leviticus 23, and that fast by God's people was to come on the Day of Atonement, a very special day when the priests would go in for the sake of God's people to receive forgiveness for sin. What God's people are talking about here when they come with this question is not the Day of Atonement fast that was required by God. No, they are talking about a rhythm of fasts that had become part of the life of God's people since the destruction of Israel and the exile of the previous generation. For close to 70 years, God's people had consistently entered into this season, this rhythm of remembering and mourning the events that surrounded that fateful year, let's just say. So in the 10th month, they fasted to remember the beginning of the siege against Jerusalem. In the fourth month of the following year, they fasted to commemorate the walls of Jerusalem being breached. In the fifth month, they fasted again to mourn the city of Jerusalem eventually falling to the enemy. And then finally in the seventh month, they fasted to remember the assassination of the governor of Jerusalem at that time. So for many years, they had done this. But now things had changed, right? I mean, we've been talking about what has been changing. God had returned to His people. They had returned to God and and the temple was being restored. The temple was being built back up. And so the people come, a delegation of God's people come from Bethel and they say, maybe it's time to put the mourning aside. Maybe we can be done with that. Seems like a legitimate question, right? But as we're about to see... God's answer to them exposes what really is going on in their hearts. He reveals a deeper issue in their seemingly simple question. And as he does that, he communicates, beware of outward religion. You see, God begins his fourfold answer in verse four. It begins with the phrase, and all of the parts of the answer will begin with this phrase. The word of the Lord came. You see that in verse four? And he answers the question with a question. They're saying, do we need to keep fasting? And he answers with this question. Well, was it for me that you fasted? In other words, what exactly was at the heart of your fasting? Yahweh knows, but he wants them to 
to think about it. After all, God, remember, God didn't tell them to do these fasts. There was one God-given fast on the Day of Atonement. These were fasts that had been introduced into the life of God's people. Not a bad thing necessarily, but had been introduced in the life of God's people by themselves. And so God says, what was the point of these fasts? Was there a genuine concern about your relational standing with me? Was that what was behind these fasts? Or, should we take note of the fact that these fasts had nothing to do with grieving the sin that created the destruction of Jerusalem, but everything to do with the consequences of sin that destroyed Jerusalem? Do you see the distinction? You see, God's people had seemingly missed the point. These fasts weren't about repentance. They were about self-pity. They were about the consequences of sin, not the sin itself. This ritual was about them. The fast had become a thing in and of itself rather than pointing to an inward reality. The repentance that the outward sign was intended to stoke was non-existent. And therefore, these fasts, at least from Yahweh's vantage point, they hadn't accomplished anything. True religion, Yahweh is reminding His people, is directed at God. Not our plight, not how we feel, not what makes us feel better, and not what we think appeases God. God doesn't need our servitude. He doesn't need you and I to accomplish anything. God is after you. He's after your heart. Deuteronomy 32.9, Moses says this, but the Lord's portion is His people. And when you hear that word portion, what do you immediately think? He wants to be our portion, right? Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And and that's the cry that Yahweh wants to not only hear, that's the heart that He wants to see behind the ritual. Whatever that ritual may be. A desire for Him. A desire for His glory. A desire for His will as expressed for us in His Word. You see, that's what the previous generation had totally missed and had totally failed to do. And he recounts it for this present generation in verse 11. He says, They refused to pay attention to God's Word, but they turned a stubborn shoulder. It's kind of a weird phrase, but it has to do with livestock that dig in their hooves and refuse to go the way of their master. Refuse to have the yoke put on their necks. And so God's people turned a stubborn shoulder to him. Hosea 4, the prophet said, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. And then like kids who put their fingers in their ears and say, I can't hear you. So God's people stopped their ears, it says. 
Isaiah's prophetic ministry had this effect, for the Lord tells him in Isaiah 6, 9, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And that leads to the last and scariest of the attitude of the previous generation that Zechariah brings up. Verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard. See, enough friction on any part of the body or soul, and we become calloused, right? We just don't feel like we used to feel. We just aren't as sensitive as we once were. That's the place that the previous generation had found themselves, and that's what brought the righteous anger and judgment of God, which Zechariah recounts, which the Lord tells him to recount. And now the Lord says to Israel in the 6th century B.C., the generation of Zechariah, He says, beware lest that be true of you. Because you've been doing all these fasts, but it hasn't been about me. It's been about you. And so he says, beware, lest you follow in the footsteps of your fathers. But he's also saying it to us here this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened to them as an example, Paul says, speaking of the Old Testament saints, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. You see, Yahweh wanted the people of the 6th century B.C. in Zechariah's day to look back at that judgment and to let that judgment against God's people and His condemnation of their empty fasts or their misguided fasts to jar them to faithfulness. To awake them out of empty religion and ritual and to soften and tenderize their hearts towards Him and towards His Word. And the same is true for us. We are susceptible. I am susceptible to the same thing. And yes, we can look back as members of the New Covenant, we can look back to the Old Testament judgment of the people of Israel, but they're not our fathers, at least not directly like they were to those people whom Zechariah first spoke. But we have an added motivation because we not only look back to the judgment of the fathers, who were exiled to Babylon, but we look back to the judgment that fell upon our Savior Jesus. Right? As members of the new covenant, we look to the one who endured, who took upon Himself on the cross all of our hypocrisy, all of our empty and misguided religion, and He endured the just judgment that we deserve past, present, and future in order that we might live. And so it's in that gospel light, brothers and sisters. It's with that gospel clarity. It's with that spirit of truth that comes as a result of the gospel that we then examine our own hearts. And we hear that phrase, beware of empty religion. Beware of outward religion. And we ask questions like, okay, How are we receiving God's Word each week? What what is behind the religious exercises that we're involved in? Why are you here this morning? Why? 
Are you consoling your inward self? Are you after God's favor? Are you after somebody else's favor? Or are you here because you're after God himself? Because you know that he has made you his portion and you want to make him your portion. Beware of outward religion. Well, before we leave this point, I just want to read a helpful quote by the late preacher Martin Lloyd Jones. That's a name that some of you will know. He says this We can fast, we can deny ourselves things, and the whole time we are just centering upon ourselves and thinking about how it's going to improve ourselves or make ourselves better. We may be highly religious, but there may be no place for God. Or even if he does come in, he is simply there as someone who may be of help to us. Brothers and sisters, may it not be said of us, these words. Beware of outward religion. That's the first exhortation from this prophecy this morning. But there's a second one I want us to see briefly. A second exhortation of Yahweh's answer, and it's this. Not just beware of outward religion, but strive for outward religion. Strive for outward religion. And you say, wait a second. Beware and yet strive for? Yes. Right, The paint, the mulch, the candle, they're all good things. They're not bad in and of themselves, nor is the outward religion of God's people. Outward religion is necessary in order to expose, in order to show an inward changed heart. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so as we talked about a couple weeks ago, God dwells in us, so we must deal with our sin. We must strive for holiness. We must strive for gospel fruit in our lives. And that's what this passage is speaking of. There is again an allusion here in verse 9 to truth and integrity in our dealings with one another. Truth in judgment, kindness and mercy in interaction. All relational things that culminate in Yahweh reminding His people of His heart. A heart that's to be reflected in us. A heart for the disadvantaged. A heart for the vulnerable. A heart for the widow the sojourner, the fatherless, and the poor. You see, that's the kind of heart that the Lord desires that true fasting would reveal. I want to read to you Isaiah 58. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. Isaiah 58, one of the former prophets, says this, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? 
Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And it goes on and on as the prophet speaks to God's people about the emptiness of their fasts and their lack of outward religion. So the challenge for us is as we are mindful of and asking our own hearts, about our religious exercise, we also ask, what does this look like in our lives? What does our religious exercise look like? Are we not only mindful of these categories of people that have always been close to Yahweh's heart, but are we intentionally focused on their care? How might you live this out this week, this month? Maybe it's simply beginning with this prayer. Lord, put in my way anyone who needs something that I can fill. Maybe it begins with that simple prayer. Lord, here I am. Use me. Strive for outward religion. It's the second exhortation from this passage. But what about the practice of fasting? I mean, fasting brought this whole subject up with God's people. It's read a bit of Isaiah 58. It seems like God's a little bit down on fasting. I grant that this passage isn't primarily about fasting. That's not the point of the passage. The point is about outward religion. Both being cautious about it as well as showing it. But the question remains, should should we fast? Is that something that can be a show of outward religion? Well, Jesus actually rebuked the religious leaders of his day for making fasting too much of a show. So fasting is not necessarily an outward religion that we ought to make public or display in the same way that we might seek to display other forms of outward religion. But fasting does have its place. And we've talked about this at length in other sermons, in other passages That fasting can not only be a sign of mourning and of genuine repentance, but an outworking of hunger, an expression of longing, a way to intensify hunger for God Himself and for Jesus and His return. We don't fast because we're empty. We fast because we are filled and we want more. We want more of Him. No sooner that Jesus left this earth than we find the early church beginning to fast. Not in empty religion, not in empty ritual, not to earn some magical points before God, but recognizing that the bridegroom is gone, that none of the good things on this earth can ultimately take his place. And so we long for his return. And we want our bodies to feel that at times. Let me just end this little excursus on fasting with one quote, Richard Foster. More than any discipline, fasting reveals the things 
that control us. It's a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed in the image of Jesus. We cover up what is inside with food and with other things. And so I think we can fast. I think we ought to fast as new covenant believers. Let me just end with these questions, two questions. What's the state of your longing? Fasting doesn't say that the things that God has given us on this earth are bad. It just says that God's better. So where is your longing? Where is your portion? What is your heart striving for? What's the state of your inward religion? And then also, what's the state of your outward religion? Where's your intentionality with the vulnerable? Where's your willingness to step in when needed? I can't answer those questions for each of you. I can only answer those questions for myself, but I pray the Holy Spirit stirs in you by His Word. Beware of outward religion, but strive for it with a gospel-saturated heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the prophet Zechariah, for your words to him, for your word that has been preserved and passed down generation upon generation. And we pray now that it would not return to you void, but would accomplish all you intend for it to accomplish for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.